all along I was able to take my Imitrex or whatever. And then I got pregnant. I was getting horrific, horrific headaches. I was just told over and over again to take Tylenol. He was like, if you say Tylenol again, she might attack you. What would make a perfectly normal pregnant special ed teacher attack somebody over the word Tylenol? Welcome to The Push. This is a pregnancy neurology podcast. Today's episode, Migraine and Pregnancy. We're here talking with Angela. Now, she's among the 17% of women who suffer from migraines. What exactly is a migraine? What do you do when the list of the most effective drugs in migraine doesn't quite line up with the list of the safest drugs to use in pregnancy? And finally, what if your patient doesn't want to take medication at all during pregnancy? We're going to answer all these questions today and more. First, here's Angela. Her migraines began around puberty. A lot of it seemed hormonal. Like, it seemed like it made sense that sometimes my head hurt because, you know, I was a teenager. Having my period was relatively new. Maybe the two were related. But as she entered adulthood, things changed. The frequency certainly increased as I got older. By the end of college, they were clustering around my periods. They knocked me out. They were debilitating. Angela is not alone. If you look at women of childbearing age, 11 to 26 percent suffer from headaches, and most of them migraine. So this is a pretty big issue. We're going to get back to Angela in a minute, but first we need to answer a question. What exactly is a migraine? If you go by the International Headache Society criteria, migraine boils down to a series of checkboxes. Is the pain moderate to severe? Check. Throbbing or pulsating? Check. Often unilateral, worse with exertion, nausea, light or sound sensitivity? Check check, check. To diagnose a migraine, you have to have at least five of these attacks and no other neurological explanation for the pain. But why does this occur? What is the science behind migraine? To answer this question, I spoke with Dr. Carl Saab. He's a neuroscientist at Rhode Island Hospital, and his research is in pain. Any acute form of pain uh, would resolve after the injury is healed. In the case of migraine, there is evidence that the neurons which convey the information to the brain become themselves hypersensitive. So in other words, in migraine, the neurons don't just carry the regular pain message. They themselves change. But why is that? According to Dr. Saab, it boils down to neural networks, a fancy way of saying the complex way the brain is connected. Even without a migraine attack, the brains of patients with migraines uh, look different from the normal population. In the case of Angela, she has been experiencing migraine for a long time. So her response to a soft stimulus, uh, which to you and me could be a gentle light or, or a gentle sound to her because her brain is sensitized now, her brain will react differently and all of her circuitry will be revved up. So that explains why patients with migraines are sensitive to light. But what about the rest of the symptoms? Dr. Saab explained that due to this revved up circuitry, they tend to respond to a minor stimulus with a major storm. So one of the uh, mechanisms that researchers have been following up is called cortical spreading depression, whereby that gentle stimulus transforms into a tsunami of electrical activity and electrochemical activity. That tsunami of neuronal activity known as cortical spreading depression is thought to be responsible for the aura of migraine. A visual aura can be a shimmery spot or zigzag lines, and a sensory aura can be numbness or tingling on just one side of the body during an attack. But cortical spreading depression sets off more than just an aura. A migraine attack involves a coordinated cascade, resulting in the release of inflammatory and pain chemicals and changes in the blood vessels inside the head. The end result is this temporary malfunction of the central nervous system with moderate to severe pain, hypersensitivity, and nausea. 
But it doesn't stop there. Every pain pathway sends some fibers to the memory and emotional centers of the brain. And those pathways are responsible for something we call the affective component of pain, the emotions attached to the pain. Remember this because we're going to talk about this a lot later. The affective part of pain holds a key to treating migraines without medications. And we're going to get to that. But now that we've covered the science of migraine, we've got to talk about migraine drugs. Remember Angela? She went from teenager to adult and her migraines multiplied. She tried a lot of drugs, but fortunately found one that worked for her. The Imitrex has been like my favorite, my favorite migraine drug. There have been a ton of them in the last like 20 years. Imitrex, known as Sumatriptan, is a serotonin agonist or tryptan medication that can shut down a migraine. And it's only used, in fact, for migraines. It doesn't work on other types of pain. Triptans can be highly effective for women with migraine, and along with NSAIDs like ibuprofen, naproxen, and others, they're considered the first line in the acute treatment of migraine. That is, until a patient gets pregnant. This is what happened to Angela. All along, I was able to take my Imitrex or whatever, and then I got pregnant. I was just told over and over again to take Tylenol. And by, like, the third appointment that my husband and I went to, he was like, if you say Tylenol again, she might attack you. Like, you please don't say Tylenol, whatever you do. So let's set the scene. Angela becomes pregnant and begins getting horrific, horrific headaches. What do her doctors suggest? Take Tylenol. Angela's doctors were right about one thing. Tylenol, or acetaminophen, is generally considered safe in pregnancy. But remember all those other drugs I told you about? Turns out... The list of medicines considered absolutely safe in pregnancy has almost no correlation with the list of medicines that actually help your headache. And to make matters worse, Angela wasn't getting any information at all about these drugs. And I had this arsenal of like, here are all the things in my medicine cabinet, and, and maybe one of them is okay right now, because I've got zillions of things. Like, which one would you pick if you had to pick one? So what do you do? You're probably familiar with the categories for drug safety in pregnancy. To refresh your memory, category A drugs are considered safest in pregnancy. Category B means there have been no risks found in humans. Category C means there's not enough research to determine if the drugs are safe. And category D means there have been adverse reactions in babies exposed to the drug in utero. Category X means there's substantial risk, and we generally don't use these drugs at all in pregnancy. So here you have acetaminophen as category B, and we do use it in pregnancy, while NSAIDs are category D in the third trimester, and triptans are category C. But it gets even more complicated from here. You see, outside of pregnancy, for people who are getting more than one migraine per week, we neurologists generally recommend a daily prophylactic medication to prevent migraines from happening. Two drugs considered highly effective by the American Academy of Neurology 2012 guidelines are topiramate and valproic acid, and both are considered category D. Other commonly prescribed drugs, like beta blockers and antidepressants, can be very effective, but amitriptyline and propranolol are both considered category C. This does sound complicated, and Angela's doctors certainly agreed. They could either treat my pregnancy or they could treat me. Angela had been following with the fertility clinic who helped her get pregnant, with clinicians whose expertise was not necessarily in migraine. But when Angela transitioned to a regular OBGYN, things changed. She was so sweet. She said, oh, you have a history of migraine. She's like, how's that going? And I, I looked at my husband, and I was like, it's been fine. But I wasn't going to have the Tylenol conversation again. And I remember him, like, his, his little smirk, like he didn't know what to do. 
But he knew he shouldn't, like, throw me under the bus because what if I became violent over Tylenol? And she said, okay, well, if they come back, because they might, I've got a guy. And I was like, oh, you do? Okay, well, I think they're back. That guy was Dr. Kenneth Chen. He could treat an illness even though I was pregnant. And he got me out of pain. I tracked down Dr. Chen. He has a different take on medications in pregnancy. Rather than looking at category, he said to look specifically at the data behind each drug. And more importantly, to use your judgment. You have to take these data with a grain of salt. He started on magnesium oxide for prophylaxis and later on amitriptyline, a category C medication, but one that works for migraines even in very low doses, 10 or 25 milligrams a day. He told her that it was okay to use the sumatriptan or imitrex if she really needed it. You know, at the end of the day, um, the benefits of using it would outweigh the risk because um, if she kind of got worse and worse and she ended up being bed-bound for four or five days and not being able to do any of her usual activities, and that would actually end up being worse for the baby because uh, the mother's under a lot of intense stress. One of the dangers of the Imitrex was high blood pressure and that that would really be an issue, especially toward the end, but that it wasn't a good idea for me to be in that kind of pain either. Even the FDA is moving away from the alphabet category system and towards a more detailed discussion of risks. In 2015, they released a narrative approach to safety of drugs in pregnancy called the PLLR, or Pregnancy Lactation Labeling Rule. Basically, this order data that's available both in clinical trials or in animal studies or human studies, etc. And uh, it actually, at the end, kind of gives a summary of um, recommended use. New drugs abide by this PLLR. For clinicians treating pregnant patients, Dr. Chen adds that there are other useful resources online, like Terrace or Reprotox. If you read through the data, you'll learn some other things about these drugs. NSAIDs, for example, can be used in pregnancy before 20 weeks gestation. After 20 weeks, there's a risk of premature closure of the patent ductus arteriosus. For prophylaxis, magnesium oxide, usually 400 milligrams a day, is a common first line. Dr. Naharika Mehta, a colleague of Dr. Chen's in the obstetrical medicine department at Women and Infants Hospital, agrees. In fact, she's even used it to treat her own migraines in pregnancy. I started to believe in it after I had personal experience with it. And because I was like, whoa, this is like magic. According to Dr. Metha, the prophylactic drug to pick after magnesium boils down to clinician and patient choice, including risks and side effects. Dr. Chen chose amitriptyline for Angela. It can sometimes cause weight gain and tachycardia. Beta blockers like metoprolol and propranolol can cause dizziness, but they're frequently used in pregnancy anyway, particularly metoprolol because it doesn't cross the placenta. Other treatments can include occipital nerve block. This is a lidocaine injection to the nerves in the back of the head, and this injection doesn't enter the bloodstream or reach the baby. In other words, there are a bunch of options in the toolkit, and just knowing there are options out there can be helpful for pregnant women to hear. I have myself had experience with patients that the moment you tell them that, yes, there is something that you could use, just having that medication in their possession makes them feel safer and makes them feel better. But Dr. Metha also says, don't completely write off the Tylenol approach. It's still the safest drug to use in pregnancy. It just has to be used correctly. If you're going to take medication, then you might as well take medication in a way that it's going to help you. Tylenol, it is a mild medication, so you really have to take it when your headache is mild, when it is 1 or 2 over 10 intensity, or sometimes even if they have a typical aura, I will tell them take it when you start getting the aura, even before you have actually had the headache. Take it with a little bit of caffeine, um, and then sometimes we might add uh, metoclopramide. 
Okay, we've talked about the science of migraine, how migraine brains are different, more sensitive. And we've talked about the medications. Don't ignore the category system exactly, but read the data and spend some time discussing specific risks with your patient. But now we've moved on to that third question. What if your pregnant patient really, really doesn't want to take a medication at all? Well, some women try acupuncture or physical therapy, but here's where the affective pain we talked about earlier comes into play. Remember, this is the emotional part of pain. Angela described her migraines as horrific. I was getting horrific, horrific headaches. And yet here was Angela about to give birth, which begs the question, isn't childbirth also painful? Why is that pain so very different? I asked our neuroscientist, Dr. Carl Saab, for a lot of people, some forms of pain could be a window to exalting feelings or the feeling that they have a purpose in life. A lot of cultures think that pain is the best teacher you could ever have if it has a value. Now, if pain does not have a value, like in the case of migraine, then that becomes associated with more negative emotions and feelings such as depression and anxiety and the fear of losing one's job and being debilitated, whereas childbirth is definitely a very painful experience, uh, which I have been told, um, but it could be cast in a positive light, whereas a migraine attack, which is again very debilitating, uh, could be cast in a negative light. The affective or emotional component of pain really colors how patients process that painful experience. So what do you do about the emotional side of pain? Can reducing stress and restructuring the negative feelings actually help a migraine sufferer? According to Dr. Lucy Rathier, the Director of Lifespan Behavioral Medicine Clinical Services, your patients first have to identify those negative thoughts. Oftentimes they're engaged in maladaptive cognitions, particularly catastrophizing. For example, if somebody wakes up with a headache, oh great, it's another day with headache, the whole day's going to stink, I'm going to be totally debilitated. As part of her job, she looks at lifestyle patterns and triggers for migraine. Now Angela is a teacher. She teaches special ed. And for a pregnant teacher with migraine, there are particular challenges. It's like when all the kids leave the room or the, the action stops and I kind of get a minute to breathe, it feels like all of the pressure and stress of the day like hits the back of my head. You know, she's a special ed teacher. It's a very rigorous kind of job. You know, like you're on stage. Like you're working, but you're like on stage. And like actors and actresses probably get migraines too, but when they're on stage, like plow through and they don't they don't show it or feel it until their show is over and I think as a teacher it's kind of like every day is a show. Certainly one of the main concerns with uh, teachers is that they're obligated obviously to be in the classroom uh, so they don't get a lot of breaks that are not scheduled so they're reluctant to keep hydrated. They often aren't very good with uh, managing their uh, healthy and regular food intake. Lunches are abbreviated. They can't really be eating snacks in front of the kids. Dr. Rathier is talking about triggers here. The typical triggers for migraine can include changes in diet or skipping meals, dehydration, changes in sleep, caffeine intake, hormones, stress level, the list goes on. Now think about pregnancy. Many of these typical triggers are magnified, but identifying triggers is just one component of what Dr. Rathier does. All the strategies I utilize are evidence-based, and so there is grade A evidence for cognitive behavioral therapy for headache and migraine and for the use of relaxation strategies with biofeedback. In general, the, the data shows that using cognitive behavioral therapy with relaxation can reduce headache frequency from 30 to 60%. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the mainstay of treatment. 
This is a method of restructuring your thinking patterns. In other words, hacking your own brain and rewiring it towards more positive thought patterns. She also teaches diaphragmatic breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, biofeedback, and something so simple as not overusing analgesic medications, which can lead to rebound headaches. But the technique I came here to learn today, I should say my ulterior motive for meeting with Dr. Rathier, is a technique called autogenic relaxation. This is a meditational form in which you can actually raise your body temperature and improve blood flow through the power of thought. And this can help your migraines. I've wanted to learn this technique forever <laughs> because I have migraines and I just want you to feel how cold my hand yeah, is, yeah. okay? Um, it's like a running joke in my family how cold my hand is and I'm constantly like touching my husband or my children, yeah. like putting my hand on their shoulder and say, feel how cold my hand is and then just watching them like hit the ceiling. Or so you're going to start with the diaphragmatic breathing and you're just going to do that continually throughout you, you know just make sure you're you're doing that and i'm going to say some sentences to you and then i want you to try to create that that experience in your body dr rathier normally places a digital thermometer on the hand and transforms the power of imagination into warm hands we didn't have the thermometer today but i was ready to begin my training so uh, we'll start. All right, so here's your first sentence. And try it again to experience this in your body. I feel quite quiet. I am beginning to feel quite relaxed. My hands, my arms, and my shoulders feel heavy, relaxed, and comfortable. Warmth is flowing into my hands. They are warm, warm. Did it work? Well, it may have been my imagination, but I could swear my hands warmed up by a degree or two that day. Can you really convince yourself that your hands are warmer? That your headache is gone? The evidence says, yes, you can. There's something about the power of positive thinking when it comes to dealing with symptoms of migraine, or any pain for that matter. And Angela agrees. Once she had a tool to treat her migraine, her whole mindset changed. The, the lower stress helps so much. I, could, I was able to enjoy pregnancy. I moved from my focus being, oh my god, my head is going to explode, to all the fun things about pregnancy, which for me were that like in that pregnancy, flavors were all like multiplied by a thousand. And there was so much to eat and it was so delicious. And, and I missed 10 whole weeks of that. For Angela, education was the key to migraine recovery. And for you folks, I hope you learned something today. I know I certainly did. Feel how cold my hand is. <laughs> Thanks to our experts, Dr. Carl Saab in the Department of Neurosurgery at Rhode Island Hospital, Dr. Kenneth Chen and Dr. Naharika Mehta in Obstetrical Medicine at Women and Infants Hospital, and Dr. Lucy Rathier in the Lifespan Behavioral Medicine Department at the Miriam Hospital. Music is by Tom Van Buskirk, and it's based on his baby's fetal heartbeat. Production assistance by Megan Hall and Lauren Black. Big thanks to Bob Lovinger in the Lifespan Development Office, and special thanks to Larry Warner and the Rhode Island Foundation for making this podcast possible.